It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In many cases in medicine, we make decisions based on limited data. You know, waiting for perfection of information is not going to happen. But this is not just treating one patient. This is about treating the entire planet. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. My goodness. Well, a lot has happened since last week. I think I recorded that podcast that ran last week with Stephen Levy. I think that ran, I think we recorded that maybe 10 days ago. The world is completely unrecognizable. So it feels a little weird to do a podcast about anything other than coronavirus because it all feels a little bit secondary or kind of insignificant at the moment. So we're going to do a couple different things kind of going forward. One, um, you'll see from this week's guest, it's, it's not perhaps our typical guest, but I think you will find it super interesting. We'll get to that in a second. I'm also going to be doing probably more pods kind of peppering them in more, talking to lots and lots of people, a lot of conversations I think you guys should hear. I think you'd find them useful and informative and thought-provoking and hopefully a little bit helpful. So things are going to be a little bit different over these next couple weeks. We'll still try to sprinkle in a little bit of everything, tech, non-tech, pandemic, non-pandemic. But that said, this week we have actually two people, two guests. They're totally separate, but we're just going to bash them into one. The first guy who you're about to hear is Dr. John Unatis, and he is the Chair of Disease Prevention at Stanford University. He is a doctor, he is an epidemiologist, and as you'll hear, he has spent his life thinking about and studying epidemics. And the reason I had him on, beyond the very obvious reason of we're in the middle of a pandemic is he has a little bit of a different take on what is happening and the information that is driving what is happening in terms of the government responses. So he wrote an article talking about just the evidence or lack thereof it. I will let him explain. He does it much more eloquently than I, but I think you'll find it really interesting. And I think it's worth keeping this in mind as, as the world kind of goes into shutdown yeah, it's um, incredible times. And then after him, we'll do a little pause, and then I'll bring on Klaas Gustafsson, who is a co-founder and is the chief commercial officer of a company called Adam Bio. And they are a private company. They're here in Silicon Valley. And what they do is they basically synthetically create viruses 
So when things like this happen, these guys go into overdrive. They make lots of copies of the virus and then send them out to companies who then run their tests, their vaccines, etc. on them to see if they can actually come up with something that works. So he has quite an interesting perspective, not least because, like everything else, they were shut down or largely shut down this past week. We are now in shelter in place, which means basically don't leave your house unless you need to get a little exercise or whatever. But we are otherwise here recording this at about midnight because it's the kind of the only time um, there's silence in this house. We have both our kids here. My wife and I are kind of basically trading shifts between daycare and working. It's uh, I'm sure all of you have very similar stories um, and hope everybody is in the meantime staying safe and healthy insane so i will stop talking now but yeah just keep your keep your eye on the feed because there will probably be some other stuff starting to get peppered in as opposed to just the usual friday morning podcast drop there'll probably be a few it'll probably be a bit more frequent than that so anyhow without further ado i give you dr ionatis and then after him klaus gustafson of adam bio so here is dr ionatis enjoy So first of all, I congratulate you on your Zoom etiquette because you're wearing a suit and I'm wearing a t-shirt. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I'm stuck to formality. <laughs> <laughs> I read your piece and I thought it was really interesting just given everything that is happening and the reactions. I mean, it feels like every day the government reaction around the world is getting more and more severe. And when you step back and you're trying to figure out what is happening here and why... I think the assumption of everybody is, okay, well, obviously, the powers that be know a lot more than we do. There's no other reason that they would basically plunge the entire world into a deep, deep recession and ask everybody to change kind of what it means to fundamentally be human, at least for a while, in order to stall this. But this piece that you wrote throws some of that into question. So if you could just talk about what you're trying to get across in the article and why you wrote it. So this is an article that I tried to balance uh, what might be the benefits and what might be the harms of what we do, whether we can even make a fair judgment of whether we're doing more good than harm by throwing the most aggressive measures to trying to do something about COVID-19. Basically, we don't have the data to feel that the aggressive measures that we're taking are going to do more benefit than harm. I think the data that we're missing are very easy to get. They're very plain tools of epidemiology to estimate prevalence and incidence, uh, how many people are infected and what is the change in the number of infections as we implement different measures. In the absence of that, any measure that we can take is completely blind. And we know for sure the aggressive measures that we're trying have not been tried before. They may have tremendous consequences. Many of them uh, we can fathom. Others we cannot even fathom because there's a lot of unpredictability about how people would react in such unusual circumstances. So I'm willing to accept the fact that right now I'm in shelter-in-place conditions. Practically, it's a little bit like being in jail. But within these two or three weeks that this is happening... We need to get data to see if that should continue or whether we should be a bit smarter about what we do. And maybe we should think about a completely different strategy before we completely annihilate our world. Right. 
I'm uh, one of the two directors of the uh, Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford also, which is a center that is trying to assess the validity of scientific data, uh, trying to detect and correct biases, trying to uh, improve research practices so that we get more reliable information, more reliable evidence that can guide our decisions. Science is the best thing that has happened to humans. So we need to use the best science. We need to use the best data. So you can see why I'm completely frustrated to see that we don't have minimal data and we make such monumental decisions. So this obviously broke out in China. To the best of what everybody knows, it looks like it started, it kind of moved to humans in November-ish. And Wuhan, they did their total lockdown. And it appears to have worked. Now, how much can we infer from that response that, look, we need to do something similar here or we're going to have a catastrophe? Because obviously they have the data. They're testing, you know, everybody before you get on a bus, they're taking temperatures and whatnot. I mean, it's it's the kind of the totalitarian state come to life in the, perhaps in this sense in a good way. Obviously, that set a model that now other people are following. I think that uh, we need to take with a grain of salt what it means that the intervention worked in China. I think that we don't really know much about the denominator of how many people were infected and whether it was the measures or some other features of the course of the epidemic that eventually led to that. We have many other situations in other countries where we have seen far, far lower case fatality rates compared to what we saw in the first outbreak in China. For example, if you take the Scandinavian countries uh, until very recently, they didn't have any of those lockdown measures. But nevertheless, their case fatality rates were 30 times lower. Three zero times. Case fatality was about 3% or higher in, uh, in Wuhan until we were still measuring all people who wanted to be tested. It was like 0.1% in the Scandinavian countries. Right now, testing is done only in people who have uh, substantial symptoms. So the denominator, again, even in these countries is going to be much affected. And this is what I'm trying to, like, I think everybody's trying to get their heads around is here we are in America, the richest country on the planet. And relative to the population, there's effectively no testing. I mean, on a statistical basis. That seems to be, to your point, step one, no? Otherwise, everything else is a little bit fumbling around in the dark, no? Exactly. So I, I think that we need testing. We need testing to be scaled up. And we also need some sample that is random and representative of the general population to get a sense of objective estimates of the prevalence of the infection at the moment, how many people have been infected, and also be able to track the incidence of, uh, of new infections. With the technology, it's something that is very straightforward. CDC has tremendous experience. Public health departments are pretty much the same. I'm not asking for some uh, unknown rocket science. It's epidemiology 101. Would be extremely informative to, to know where we are, where we are heading, and what kind of response we get by these measures that we apply. So the two cases you bring up, which I think are kind of two ends of the spectrum, and I just want to unpack them a bit, that you bring up in the article. One is the Diamond Princess, where you have, in a way, a kind of a perfect Petri dish to see how much this thing is going to spread. And then the other, you have what is happening in Italy. Everybody knows what's happening there. Thousands have died. The hospital's overwhelmed. And basically, everybody is trying to avoid what is happening there now. But if we can go first to the Diamond Princess. So the, the Diamond Princess is uh, the one situation where we have a closed population. People are in a cruise ship. They're, they're packed, cramped together. 
They cannot go anywhere. They're living in very close quarters. Uh, we track everyone. We test everyone to see if they're infected or not. And we have a very accurate estimate of the case fatality rate in these people. We know also who they are. We know their age, their gender. And we can project from what we have observed in terms of deaths, what would be the equivalent number of deaths if you take, for example, the age structure of the general U.S. population. Right, because the cruise ship is generally, it's older people, it's of a certain kind of demographic, etc. So 1% uh, death rate so far. Of course, some people are still with uncertain outcomes, so there may be a few more, who knows. But 1% in what is a, a very elderly population of people taking a, a cruise with average age of 58 and median age of probably about 65. If you translate it to the uh, U.S. age population pyramid, is about 0.13%. If what happened in the Diamond Princess, you just kind of transplant that to the American populace at large, it's 0.125% or whatever. Which is much, much lower compared to all, all of the estimates that were circulating very early on. And were even adopted in press releases by the WHO, 3.4% is fatality rate. You know, an, an infection fatality rate of 0.125 is very close to that of seasonal influenza. And of course, there's all of these residual uncertainties. Uh, for example, whether these people had also chronic diseases uh, mm. or not, uh, because this is also a strong risk factor, uh, whether some of them may die later. Overall, we're talking about a completely different ballpark completely different type of infection in terms of uh, what its fatality would be if uh, we are in that range. Is there any variance in there just in terms of, I mean, it's a cruise ship of people of economic means and a certain t level of health, what, what have you, in terms of just the treatment that they receive? Because obviously that is that is an isolated population, as you say. They've quarantined the people. They've taken the people off the ship that needed to take off, and they're in the hospital now. The fear, of course, is that you can't do that if this thing really breaks out in the population. Is there some variance with that to get to that 0.125%? Absolutely. There is uncertainty. And this is why we need far more population-level data rather than a small sample in a cruise ship that has only seven deaths. You know, the sample size is seven. And we're talking about an outbreak that uh, is likely to infect millions of people. Seven people on a ship of, what is it, 3,500? It's irrational to, to say that we will decide the fate of our world based on a sample size of seven. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to, to do that. Yeah. But at the, at the same time, it uh, gives us some hint that probably the situation is not as bad as uh, it might have sounded in the beginning in terms of the case fatality rate. Some of these people receive some treatments. We have no clue, though, whether these treatments are effective or not. So that's one extreme, 0.125%, which is kind of normal flu level in a given year. Exactly. On the other extreme is what is happening in, in Italy. So Italy is the other extreme. This needs to be taken very, very seriously. But again, we have no clue about what the denominator is. There has been quite some testing, but testing has been focused uh, primarily on people with severe symptoms. So we really don't know the denominator. And I think that uh, we should be very open about what the denominator might be. There's uh, close to 40,000 documented infections uh, in Italy at the moment. But we don't really know whether the real number may be 100,000 or maybe it is already several millions of people. And again, if it is several millions of people then the infection fatality rate is 
in that same ballpark that we were talking before. But that gets back to kind of gets us to circle back to what is happening now. So like here we are in California, we're sheltering in place. If in a normal time, I would probably drive down to Stanford and we'd do this in the same room. But you're in your house, I can see from Zoom. (laughs) I am sitting on my bed while my children are ransacking the house downstairs. And it went from keep your distance from people to schools shutting down to now shelter in place to now the schools are going to be closed until September. So I think a lot of people, a lot of public health officials must be looking at kind of what's happening in Italy and saying, in a way, let's forget about the percentages. Those hospitals are being pushed to the limits. People are dying in the hallways, et cetera. This, we can't allow that to happen, whether it is, you know, 2% or 1% or whatever it ends up being. We need to take many uh, factors into account. We need to take into account what is the capacity of a healthcare system, uh, the number of uh, ICU beds in Italy versus in the U.S., uh, which per population is uh, substantially higher in the U.S. We need to take into account also the population structure in Italy versus the U.S. Italy has practically the most uh, elderly population in Europe, perhaps uh, even in the entire world or, or very close to that. And we know that people who are dying are, on average, in a pretty advanced stage and or they have serious disease uh, conditions uh, already. So their, their life expectancy would be very limited, despite uh, and regardless of whether they would be infected with, uh, with coronavirus. I don't think that it is fair to translate uh, what we have seen in Italy, or actually, to be exact, in some particular locations in Italy, because... You know, 99% of Italy has not seen that massacre. It's only very specific spots to the entire world or to the entire U.S. Even in Italy, it is a very small minority, and it can be explained by just these factors. And I'm sure that there's other factors that probably we do not know. You know, we don't know the, the type of segregation or, or clustering that these cases have. It, it, there's lots of unknown factors, and we really don't know whether that worst scenario will be seen frequently, very infrequently, not at all in in other locations. Not at all, probably, you would say, well, we've seen it. There's thousands and millions of locations around the world. It appears that there was this report done by Imperial College in London that kind of gamed out. They have a model that predicted what would happen in various different scenarios, and the worst ones are quite catastrophic. Millions of people die, et cetera. And that, uh, from, from what I understand, is what drove the massive and very dramatic and quick turnaround of, like, President Trump's approach to this. Of, like, you know, oh, this is a seasonal flu. Everybody relax to, you know, trillions of dollars of aid and shutting down the country, et cetera. And that seems to be similar why the U.K. went from herd immunity, basically let everybody get it, and hope for the best to, again, they look like they're heading very swiftly in the direction that we are in terms of the measures being put in place. How much faith should be put in those models? Both the models by the Imperial College team and other efforts that have been done are valuable. I mean, they can contribute to uh, trying to get to the optimal decision-making. However, their mathematical models, their projections, they're, they're trying to make lots of assumptions and based on these assumptions, trying to project what will happen. We don't know if that, that would be what we see in reality. And they may be off by log scales. 
they, they could be tremendously off. Some of the assumptions in the Imperial College modeling seem to be off already, you know, at, at the very basic assumptions that they have made. For example, their core model, if I recall, assumes an infection fatality rate of 0.9%, uh, 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 which, as we discussed, may be very, very high compared to what might be the real infection fatality rate. They also assume an R0, or a basic uh, reproductive number, of uh, uh, 2.4 in their main analysis, yeah. uh, with, with a range from 2 to 2.6. And different mathematical models have shown basic reproduction numbers from 1.3 to 6.5. And all of these are excellent people, you know, very well qualified, but 1.3 is pretty much seasonal flu, or, or even better. 6.5 could be the end of the world. <laughs> So the range is tremendous, and I think that the best evidence that we have suggests that probably 2.4 is, is really too high. If we think that we managed to contain the epidemic with what we did in China, for example, we did in, in South Korea, it's extremely difficult to get a success story if you have uh, a 2.4. You need to drop that number below 1. And to drop that number below 1 if you have a 2.4 starting point is amazingly difficult. While if you have a starting number that is 1.2, for example, then yes, with the right measures, you have a pretty decent chance that uh, you will be able to get it below one and, and try to stop the epidemic chain from growing. Right. So is is it potentially true that if it is two and a half, two and a half to get it to below one, to get it to kind of the the progression to go into reverse or to fall dramatically as dramatically as it has started to in China and South Korea, it's almost impossible. I wouldn't say it's impossible because it's just a mathematical model. Right, and that's what I'm saying. Like, if, you know, if it is as contagious as some of these models are saying, to get it so quickly and so dramatically to go in the opposite direction, perhaps the assumption, the base assumption is off. Absolutely. These numbers take a lot of water. They can uh, be very imprecise unless we get real data. I, I don't think that we should decide the fate of the world based on mathematical models alone. They're useful. I, I think we need to, to get the most we can get of them. But uh, in terms of the level of evidence, I would put them very, very low. In evidence-based approaches, we have some types of data that we believe more than others. Ideally, you would like to have randomized trials. At a minimum, though, if we don't run randomized trials, we need real data in the community, in the general population, the real world. We cannot just make projections from a mathematical model and say that we need to shut down our world for 18 months based on that. And this is taken for a fact. And so what's the answer? Is the answer effectively test, 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 test? Yes, absolutely. Test and uh, also test in a way that we have some reliable estimate of evolving prevalence and incidence. How long have you been doing this, studying epidemics? I loved epidemiology since I was a little kid. You know, my parents uh, gave me the, the National Statistics Census uh, book when I was eight years old. <laughs> oh, wow. So you're really deep into it. So I guess my question is, is there a precedent either for... Again, I guess we don't really know the nature of the bug yet, of the virus. But is there a precedent that you can kind of think about or that can help us understand either what this potentially could mean and also the response? Already what has happened, regardless of how the virus plays out. 
the fact that we have gone from a growing economy to one that's going to contract by eight to 10% in the matter of three months is just boggles the mind. But just trying to kind of place this in historical context, or is this a kind of, is there not one? It's very hard to find a historical context. People make the comparison against the 1918 influenza pandemic. I think it's a false comparison. There is one analogy, the the worst case scenario for the number of of deaths during COVID-19 is the same as the 1918 influenza pandemic. Uh, The estimate is about 40 million deaths worldwide if we assume that 60% of people get infected and 1% of them die. However, in the 1918 pandemic, people who died on average were 28 years old. They were young, healthy people with their entire life in front of them. People who are dying from COVID-19, they're 75 years old and you know, heavily loaded with chronic diseases with a life expectancy of just a couple of years in, in most cases. The burden of disease of the 1918 pandemic was much, much larger compared to the infectious burden of disease of COVID-19, even under the very worst assumptions, which personally I believe are just not valid. But to be able to prove me wrong, I think we need to get the data that I was requesting. So an analogy with this type of event is not easy, and I think it's probably wrong. We know that we have the ability to model projections, not only for the infection, but also for the economy or indicators of many diseases like depression, anxiety, suicides, violence, you know, domestic violence, child abuse, uh, all sorts of things that can go completely in weird directions. And I think that we need this type of work because uh, once you start running some even back-of-the-envelope calculations, you run into the conclusion that the linear, fairly predictable negative impact can be amazing. It can be far worse than even 40 million deaths that is the worst scenario for the infection component. Then there's the unpredictable component, which is uh, major events that are chaotic. You just don't know how humans react under such very un- weird circumstances. When we had the Black Death in 1348, we didn't have nuclear weapons. We didn't have the ability to destroy ourselves so easily. Now we have many ways to destroy ourselves. In any extreme crisis, there are all these additional unpredictable components that... Uh, make me think that uh, it's very scary to to make these decisions just thinking about the infection component. If what we need, and I know it's more layered and complex than this, but if what we need is tests and tests on a massive scale, I just don't understand why that's not happening. It definitely doesn't make any sense. And I think that this is uh, unfortunately a failure. And there, there were some technical failure in early phases, but we have the technology, we have the science, we have the industrial capacity to really scale this up if we make that a priority. It's not something that we have not done before. I mean, these types of tests are bread and butter tests that we run millions of them. So there's no way that we cannot do that right away. (laughs) I'm just, I'm a little bit at a loss for words because obviously people in the WHO, people in the US government, they know exactly what you just said. It's not like you're that like that is uh, kind of this out of the blue wild statement. But it just, uh, do you have any sense of why that hasn't happened? Is it just, we've kind of been wrapped, and again, I guess this is part of pandemics, epidemics, so you kind of get wrapped up in the scary numbers and the the harrowing stories and perhaps take your eye off the ball? 
I mean, is it, can it be that simple? I think that the scale of the events and the pace of the events has been so fast, so dramatic, that probably we're missing some key points. You know, people are under pressure to act, to react, to say that I'm going to use that measure and, and more measures and more extreme measures. But I think that in the process, we're forgetting some very fundamental and much easier things that, uh, that need to be done. And I think testing is really paramount in that situation. And are you involved in any way in the, in the response? I'm trying to do the best in terms of, uh, of just communicating some of that perspective that we have been discussing about yeah. and also organizing some of the evidence that uh, is available. For example, there are some efforts that I'm involved that try to systematically collect and appraise information on clinical trials that are being done on uh, treatment for SARS-CoV-2 and uh, trying to make sure that we have the most reliable evidence on that scale. I, I think that it's important to be able to characterize how much we know, uh, what are the tools that we have, and uh, what can they do for us. Uh, there's over 100 clinical trials at the moment being run. But as you realize, there's no certainty about it. So the major decisions need to be made now. They need to be reappraised and revised as quickly as possible with data. Right. If we shut down everything now because we have no data, I'm willing to accept that. You know, we, we, we have no data and we're facing a lethal threat. So we just throw everything at it. This may be devastating. It, well, I think it's no question that it's devastating. I know I'm not unique in already knowing several people in my kind of family, in my circles who are losing jobs, who are losing opportunities, who are having to batten down and just, you know, completely upend their lives. And there's no end in sight. I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, I mean, uh, as of last night, the governor of California says schools will probably not be back in session until August, September. Just what that does to a society, especially if you're not supposed to be interacting with other people. I just, all those points you brought about depression and suicide and abuse. Yeah, when you think about it holistically, it gets quite scary quite quickly. It is. It is. And, and we just don't know. Do you have any sense of the, the just the testing capacity? I mean, I know we have it here, but China's been at this a bit longer, a few months. They must, I don't know if we're getting many, aside from Jack Ma, I know he imported a bunch. But it just feels like this is such a basic thing. And as you said, they're not special tests. Absolutely. We, we could produce them massively. We, we don't need any special technology or any special know-how. China has tested far larger numbers of people. You know, South Korea has done the same. It, it's bread and butter technology. It, it's things that, uh, you know, serology for antibodies, uh, we could have had half a century ago almost, uh, massive scale. And PCR is something that has been out there for decades. Are you personally are sheltering in place and kind of rolling with it and hoping that effectively things change soon or we have a lot more data soon? I hope we have more data soon. Otherwise, I'm, I'm extremely concerned. But it doesn't feel like that particular cavalry is coming over the, over the horizon anytime soon. We're not hearing about drive-through clinics or any of that stuff that they have in other places. There's a few initiatives, I think, but uh, not much. So in all the years you've been studying this from back when you were eight years old, have you ever seen anything like the reaction? Let's take aside the, the virus itself. I think if, if you look at uh, influenza uh, epidemics in the past, there were years that people did panic and there were big announcements and 
some projections about uh, people dying from the swine flu and you know 2009 and so forth but nothing nothing in terms of scale of the impact and the scale of the measures eventually taken with so thin data can compare that's that's empirically true in terms of the decisions made based on the amount and quality of data in many cases in medicine we make decisions based on limited data you know waiting for perfection of information is not going to happen but this is not just treating one patient this is about treating the entire planet even if we make some urgent decision we need to be able to have data to reappraise it and maybe change completely if it's wrong you know in the uk a few days ago they're talking about herd immunity and people just completely including myself i was just like that just sounds crazy just basically letting people get this and it'll be kind of fine based on what we know is it that crazy we don't know whether it's a crazy idea a disaster or the most brilliant idea ever And the reason for that is that we don't have data to know what is the level that you need to get to be able to achieve herd immunity. This is the type of information that we could get, actually, if we start collecting uh, systematic information about uh, infections. It may not be a bad idea. Indeed, if you manage to create the herd immunity, which is a, a wall against uh, the spread of the infection by infecting uh, young children and young people, then you know maybe you can protect your elderly by shielding them away just uh, isolating them or, or restricting their exposure while this uh, thing is going on until you get to some levels in the population where you have practically uh, achieved the equivalent of vaccinating right a large segment of the population so it could be valid uh, but but we just don't know because we don't have the data Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now, we have Klaus Gustafsson, who is the founder of Atom Bio, biotech here in Silicon Valley kind of on the front lines of the coronavirus. Obviously, the, the kind of world is in chaos right now, but I wanted to just, can we just start with the basics? What is Adam Bio and what have you guys been doing or involved with thus far in terms of the, the response and trying to help kind of find a cure for, for this thing? Adam Bio is a, uh, a biotech company. We're a, a service provider. What we do is we convert virtual sequences, so uh, ACGT from a database, for instance, uh, in this particular case, people sequence the coronavirus and they upload it to public domain databases. And we take that information and then we uh, either we just make exact copies of it, but more, us- more usually we, we often take that information, we design around to make, say, proteins that express well or antigens that are likely to be immunogenic or whatever the customer wants. And then the and then we synthesize those. So we do all this virtual design, and then we do a chemical synthesis of all these specific sequences. So chemical synthesis of the corona genome or the genes that creates antigens or, or whatever we're, that particular customer is looking for. And then we can either ship that as, as DNA or we can ship that as, as the protein or we can ship that as a cell line that produces the protein. So and basically we, so you're, 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 you're synthetically creating copies of the coronavirus. Yes, either the exact, vi- the exact uh, virus or gazillion variants thereof. 
based off of various design features. Right. When did you first get a call from somebody saying, hey, can you make a copy of this for us? We have a problem. I think that the sequence of the coronavirus was first uploaded to uh, Jambank in mid-January or something like that. And who? And uh, what? what is Jambank and what is... So Jambank is a... Uh, it's a public database of uh, all sequences. So it's run by, uh, I guess, the, the U.S. government. Yeah. But it's a basically a resource tool for everyone in biotech. So that's where all the virtual sequences of, of humans and viruses and uh, little funky organisms that no one ever heard of and, and another gazillion organisms, all that DNA sequence that gets uh, verified somewhere by someone, all get uploaded to GenBank. You go to GenBank, and what you see is just the kind of the, the genetic sequence of this of this virus. Correct. So it says ACGT, ACGT, ACGT right. for like 60,000, whatever, however big coronavirus is. And then, so then, what you guys do is you actually create physical virus so that people can start testing things on it. So we can do that, but typically, what we do is we identify, or we or the customer, and often together, we identify the specific region of that virus genome that that codes for some protein on the surface of the of the virus that is likely to be a good immunogenic candidate so you can use it for a vaccine because you're much better off using just the protein itself instead of the whole virus as your vaccine delivery vehicle got you for for lots of different reasons so what we typically do is that we look at that sequence and we say uh, in the case of coronavirus, this is it's called the spike protein. Yeah. Uh, so you identify the spike protein, and then you say, let's make, you know, I don't know, hundred versions of this, truncate it differently, or different extensions, or different optimizations of it, and then we synthesize those, and then we put them as synthetic DNA, put them into either mammalian cells or or, or saccharomyces or something like that, and then make a lot of those particular proteins that can be used to vaccines. And do you literally just mail those out then? And we did literally, uh, if FedEx and UPS counts as mailing out, yeah, that's what we yeah. do. So basically what you're doing is looking at this virus and being like, okay, this piece of the virus here, this sequence looks like it might be a good place to kind of attack for a, a vaccine, for example, to kind of get in, hook to that uh, sequence and basically do its work. Almost right. So, so right. vaccine is the actual thing that activates the immune system. So the vaccine is, so the old way of doing a vaccine is you take the virus and you grow it up in a big vat and then yeah. you boil it or something. So you basically kill that vaccine, the, the virus itself. And the vaccine, like the old school vaccines is basically killed off viruses that you right. shoot into, uh, inject into people. So that elicits the immune response and that's where you get the antibodies, attack it and eat it up. So what we do instead is we typically take, in silico, we can identify certain pieces of the DNA that codes for certain pieces of the membrane of the virus. So, yeah. so some things that are likely to be very characteristic of that virus to so say, this is the virus that says, this is me, I'm very unique, I'm very different from you. And right. this is a, some, some, something sitting on the surface that has that function. And then you can then feed that as a vaccine and then your immune system gets going. Got you, understand. So what's the last couple of months been like for you? Uh, pretty hectic. Once that sequence got uploaded, within the hour, we had probably a, a, at least a dozen customers who wanted to have specific sequences made. Customers are drug companies, people trying to f- create a vaccine. Correct. And they're also uh, government agencies right. for building uh, all sorts of different people. Yeah. And so how many kind of samples did you end up sending out? 
of, I don't know, hundreds, thousands. And that's still ongoing as we speak. And so it could be just the, the piece of DNA itself. It could be very modified versions of the piece of DNA, or it could be proteins that are derived from that piece of DNA. Right. And so, and have you been involved in previous outbreaks or pandemics or epidemics that have broken out and people have rushed to try to find cures? You know, certainly I remember, I remember the swine flu is back in the early days of the company. And that, when that thing got downloaded on the website, on the jam bank, we got swamped with all these right. fresh orders. But certainly we do a lot of work across the spectrum from SARS and MERS and, and swine flu. And then uh, also on, on just stuff that people work on a long time, like malaria. We have a lot of ongoing projects where right. customers are doing malaria vaccines, right? And that's been a, it's been a tough challenge. And so how does it, where does this sit in all of that work you guys are doing? I mean, I don't know if you have any sense of, of the scientific possibility of a vaccine or some kind of therapeutic treatment of this or of some kind, because obviously we're in the very early days, everybody's completely freaking out Yep. and no one really understands kind of the direction of travel here. Yep. yep. Well, so our customers, they, they come from all sorts of, they're, they give me customers who want to make antibodies that bind these things for diagnostic purposes or for the therapeutic pan, uh, purposes. Could also be customers who are making uh, verses of, of certain proteins of this virus where they want to identify small small molecules, small drugs that bind yeah. and, and stop replication or, or transcription or something. The nice thing with, with the process, it, it allows you, because you go directly from virtual, that means that you don't ever have to deal with actually getting samples from patients and with all the uh, risks that comes with that and just the complexity of shipping things from some yeah. godforsaken place and how do you clean it up and all that sort of stuff because you're since you're going from virtual you can design it ex exactly to your to your specifications right. we're a cog in this big machine of uh, attacking these things i think the advantage what we see is the the speed and efficiency of moving things now with 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 synthetic genes and a lot of the software and a lot of the machine learning going on sorry for the background noise uh, yeah it's okay you can attack these things much faster and much more efficiently today than you could just five years ago. Certainly right. back in you know, 1918, Spanish flu, everyone talks about, you know, none of these tools existed at the time. I'm in Oakland. You guys are in Newark. We're all in kind of these six counties that were ordered to be, from midnight last night, shelter in place. Yep. How has that affected the work you guys are doing? Oh, so quite a bit. So we yesterday when the... When the order came out to shelter in place we basically cut down the crew to a skeleton crew so we're still processing specifically uh, uh, quite a few of the covid orders everything else has uh, has gotten a lower priority and and i'm sure quite a few of those people working on you know cancer and all these other things is going to be sitting on the sideline for a while but it hasn't at least for now affected what you're doing on covid it's probably slowed it down because we don't have the, the same number of people uh, at it, but we're, it's still plugging along and we're trying to push it as much as we can to the front of, of, of the line. And how many of these samples are you sending out a day at the moment? On a regular day, it would be uh, uh, in the hundreds. Oh, wow. Um, but you know, I have no idea what's going to happen today. We know, I don't even know if the FedEx guy is going to pop in today. We'll find out. How long have you been doing what you do? The company started back in 2003, so we've been around for a while. And you're a co-founder? I'm a co-founder, yes. Yep. Have you, in in those 17 years, have you seen anything like this just in terms of the urgency and or kind of speed required to what you're doing right now? Well, I think that in, in the medical industry, I mean, you always, people are dying. I mean, even 
I wouldn't say uh, common things like uh, cancer, but a lot of the urgency is always a, a key criteria, right? That's why our customers they want to have things yesterday and they want to have it you know, yeah. done. We never have to shut down or go down to a minimal crew like like we're doing now. That has never happened before. Well, I hope you guys can still have enough people around to do do at least the minimum on, on this stuff because it does feel like it's um these are unprecedented times. We're living crazy days, crazy times. Thank you very much. Stay healthy. All right. Wash your hands. All right. You too. <laughs> and that is all the time we have. I want to thank both Dr. Yanadis and Klaus for taking the time to speak. They obviously both have a lot going on given everything that is happening. And in particular, well, I came out with a lot of stuff I hadn't known before, including that there's 100 clinical trials going on around um, trying to find a cure or a vaccine for coronavirus which is quite extraordinary so hopefully it works because this feels all uh just a little unsustainable so anyhow thank you for listening i'll be writing about this in the paper this weekend so please do check that out everybody is putting the, the paper together virtually there's basically nobody in the office it's really kind of amazing that we're getting this thing out our colleagues on the daily and, uh, and as well as us on the sunday it's quite a feat so please do check that out there's a lot of blood sweat and tears that's going into that and there's a lot of really um high quality stories and information and narrative in there so and you know what you have time <laughs> so uh read it Enjoy it uh, and stay safe. And I will talk to you guys very soon. Bye-bye.